Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Robert Green, who's a professor of medicine at Harvard. His research is focused on accelerating evidence-based implementation of genomic medicine, and he's done this through a number of different enormously impactful research studies that we're going to talk about today, including some of the first experimental trials disclosing common complex disease risk and some of the first prospective studies of direct-to-consumer genetic testing services. Today, he's currently leading some of the first randomized trials to explore the implementation of medical sequencing in healthy adults, which is the MedSeq project, as well as both um, you know, healthy and newborns, newborns that are both healthy and that have potential medical conditions. So Robert, first of all, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Patrick. Delighted to be here. I'd love to just kick off by diving into some of the projects you're leading today underneath the the larger Genomes to People umbrella group. Um, so maybe before that, we can just go into a quick two to three thumbnail minute thumbnail history of your career and how you got into personalized medicine. And then we can start to dive into some of the interesting studies you're leading on. Sure thing. I spent the first, I guess, third of my career as a neurologist um, studying higher cortical functions, and I was uh, studying Alzheimer's disease and learning about the her heritable components of Alzheimer's disease. And it sort of was dawning on me that genetics was super important for the etiology of this disease and would probably be important for the development of treatments and better understanding the pathophysiology. And I particularly got interested about the time that APOE was recognized uh, as a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And as you know, one version of the APOE gene puts you at increased risk for Alzheimer's disease, and others actually protect you from uh, the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And uh, I started asking all the geneticists around me, uh, well, some of my families want to know this. Can we disclose it to them? And there was this collective gasp of outrage as uh, geneticist after geneticist told me in no uncertain terms, absolutely not. It would be unethical and destructive to return any kind of genetic risk information to people. And being you know, new to the field and also a little contrarian, I was like, well, well why? <laughs> people want to know this stuff. They learn risk information about all sorts of other medical conditions without catastrophic trauma. Uh, and that really evolved, that line of thinking evolved into my first grant in this area, which was the REVEAL study. And the REVEAL study essentially used a randomized trial methodology to methodologically rigorously uh, understand the medical, behavioral, and ultimately the economic impact of disclosing genetic risk information. So we started with APOE uh, in the REVEAL study and ver various versions of the REVEAL study continued on in a continuously funded NIH grant for, um, if, you, if you count our studies today, for, for almost 20 years. Uh, but along the way, uh, we've expanded our um, aperture, if you will, to incorporate much more than one gene. And I myself uh, reoriented my entire career and mid-career went back to school, as it were, to a second residency in medical genetics, became a board-certified medical geneticist, and have just been thrilled to, to be in this field. I've come at it with the zeal of the recently converted, and um, I'm just having the time of my life in it. Amazing. What what did you learn in some of those early studies of 
you know, revelation of APOE4 status? Could people handle the truth, or so to speak, or, or what did you learn? Yeah, they really could. I think, um, I think what we've mistaken, because clinical genetics is often about starting with a devastated child or even a devastated adult, and then finding a molecular etiology. And that, of course, results in a lot of families that are deeply, deeply upset and traumatized. There's no question about that. But when you give people who are ostensibly healthy a choice about whether or not they would like to learn something uh, that uh, uh, connotes risk about themselves, some people will very clearly self-select not to learn that, and other people will very clearly self-select to learn that information. Information seekers. And it turns out that the information seekers, by and large, do extremely well with this information. Um, we have very, very precise measures of anxiety, distress, depression, post-information psychological trauma. We can actually see those dip a little bit when they learn they're, they're E4 positive or they have an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. And then we can see them normalizing within six weeks. And then we can test them a year later, four years later. And it's it's just, I don't mean to be cavalier ever about this because there's always possibilities that, um, you know, an, an individual, a particular individual can experience a great deal of distress. Um, but by and large, the narrative that dominated genetics at the time we started this, the narrative that such information was routinely, consistently going to be traumatic for people simply wasn't true. And it hasn't been true. You know, after we got started on this reveal studies stuff with APOE disclosure, some of the consumer facing or direct to consumer uh, genetic testing companies offered APOE and they've now disclosed it to millions of people. And we've met with uh, some support groups of people who did become uh, distressed by this, but uh, so again, it's, it's it's not something we want to trivialize, but it just numerically, they are an extremely small number of people. And I think we can get onto the preventive genomics clinic that you've opened up, but I've always felt like a key part of this is not to, you know, not return the information to anyone because you're concerned that a small group might have this, but it's to actually provide the support needed to that small group and and for those who are able to cope with it on their own or with a little bit of education or or genetic counseling um you know then then basically the the appropriate amount of support for for what the person needs um and i'd love to talk a little bit more about that but before we go there i'm wondering if maybe across all the different projects you've worked on babyseek medseek uh, veter you've focused on veterans the reveal study is there any one of these projects that has had the biggest impact on you personally in terms of your scientific and medical worldview and, and also any of them that you think have had the biggest impact on the field and, and maybe they're the same, maybe they're different? Well, we've kind of gone overboard in sort of naming our projects and branding them, if you will. So it is it is confusing. But I think um, it's great. I really like it. <laughs> it turned out to be a useful internal reference and, and a way of collecting our papers and naming our papers um, and just you know, referring inside to otherwise a title that would have been uh, non-memorable. But I, I guess from the reveal study, we went on, uh, just the timing was we went on to be the first prospective study to look at customers who were receiving direct-to-consumer genetic testing. It, it, it was extremely controversial at the time we 
receive that NIH grant. And um, we published on that. We can come back to some of the results there. But then um, shortly after that, we took a big leap, which was to start returning multi-domain genetic information. And by that, I mean dominant, recessive, risk variants. If we had them, pharmacogenomic variants, and ultimately even some polygenic uh, risk scores. So multi-domain genetic information to healthy adults. Uh, that was our $10 million MedSeq uh, grant uh, from NIH. Then to healthy newborn babies as a component of the BabySeq project. And then to, for the first time, to the active duty military, uh, the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, uh, funded a, a pilot project, no, no pun intended, to, um, <laughs> to sequence uh, some active duty airmen. Uh, which is the term they use for men and women in the Air Force. And um, so through these three uh, funded initiatives, we have started to untangle what exactly do you find in healthy individuals and how much of that was expected, how much of that was unanticipated, how much of that correlates with our current indication-based genetic testing directives. So the lessons from these three studies of, of ostensibly healthy people have been extraordinary. And, and, and I think we'll get into those in a minute. But I think that's what's really um, fired me up over the, the past uh, 10 years, is how much information is in a healthy individual that really could be relevant to their current and future health. Could you give some examples or stats if, if we took a thousand healthy adults coming through the MedSeq project? What what are you all finding on average? How much is you refinding that's known? How much is new? What um, what are some of the interesting stats? Yeah, sure, Ken. So part of the, the complexity here is that uh, people are often talking about one domain of genetic information or another domain, and they they're separated by by medical specialty. So the OBGYNs are really, the, and the fertility clinics are the only ones talking very loudly, at least, about preconception screening. You know, what recessive variants are you carrying that could have implications for your children? The, the pharmacologists are the only ones really talking about pharmacogenetics and the traditional pediatric-oriented medical geneticists are often the only ones talking about uh, dominant mutations, uh, unless you're in cancer, in which case it's very often, you know, breast cancer oriented or a whole separate group that's GI cancer oriented. So the totality of what's in the genome, oh yes, and then, and then the, the most recent uh, hot thing is polygenic risk scores. And right. all the, the cardiologists are, yeah. <laughs> the cardiologists are big in that, that's right. And the computational biologists writ large who have evolved through genome-wide association studies are all now talking about PRS scores, um, polygenic risk scores. So part of the problem, Patrick, in, in discussing this is it's all been fragmented between different groups who are having their own insular conversations. And I would say one of the boldest things we've done is, is ask what happens if we try to take the most relevant medical information uh, that we trust, the most valid medical information from each of those domains, 
and bring it all together and see what's in, an, in a given individual. Okay, so when we do that, as a long-winded way of getting to your question, we are looking at more than 5,000 disease-associated monogenic genes. We are looking at hundreds of thousands of markers for that, that combine to create pharmacogenomic markers or polygenic risk scores. And among those 5,000 genes, we're separating out into dominant and recessive. So what do we find? Amazingly, about uh, but somewhere between uh, about 10 to 20%, so let's just say 15% of people, healthy people walking around, we believe are carrying a monogenic dominant mutation. And let that sink in for a second. 15% of people are walking around with a cancer predisposition or a sudden cardiac death predisposition or a predisposition to early hearing loss or a predisposition to skin disease or an immune disorder or a GI problem uh, or early renal failure um, or a pulmonary disease. So it crosses the entire spectrum of medicine. But, uh, and not all of these are going to manifest. Remember the, the problem of penetrance. Uh, and that's, of course, part of the complexity. We don't always know if the particular gene variant and the particular mutation is going to be penetrant, especially in the absence of a rich family history. But that's still a startling number of people walking around with a dominant mutation. So that's 15%. How many people are out there sharing a mutation in a gene with their spouse um, uh, or partner before they have children? Well, it's hard to know because it's very ethnicity dependent, but 90%, 90% of people are walking around with at least one recessive carrier. And we've had many people who have between two and 10 each. So right now we're mostly rolling the dice when it comes to having a baby. And sure, you're, you're likely to be lucky and have a baby with someone who doesn't have mutations on the same gene as you do, but you could find, you could, you could learn that if you want to. Uh, pharmacogenomics, 80% of people have an atypical response to at least one category of drugs. Now, it might be a category of drugs that's fairly esoteric, you're never going to see, like anti-malarials, but it might be rapid or slow metabolism of antidepressants or pain medications. And finally, um, it really depends in polygenic risk scores uh, where you draw the cutoff for high risk and um, how many conditions you're talking about. But it's really easy to get to an estimate that half, 40 to 50% of people are in the highest genetic risk category for at least one common complex disease. Uh, it's, it's not hard to get there at all. So that's, that's a lot of information in a lot of people that's out there. Yeah, and, and I think you've highlighted what I think is one of the biggest barriers in the way to large-scale genetic sequencing, which is the way that the healthcare system in most countries is structured. You have these silos based on disease specialties. And if the pharmacogenomics people look at it, they say, there's no way we're spending this much for, you know, 10% of people that we can do something, you know, quote unquote, actionable about. And if the cardiologists look at it, they say only 5% of people are in this highest polygenic score group. 
have you all, and maybe this is happening in the context of your preventive genomics clinic, but have you thought about how you change the economics of this so that you can say, okay, we know that we need to spend 3000 4000 5000 whatever it is up front to do the testing, analysis, counseling, and reporting, but we can do the math and and across all of these subspecialties, we're going to save this amount in the healthcare system. Plus, we're we're obviously going to improve, um, you know, improve patient lives in some way. Have you started to at least back of the envelope those numbers? And is it anywhere close to balancing? Because um, I think we're getting close to a tipping point, but it's hard with the silos. Yeah, I really agree with you that that is a critical question, and my gut is that we are getting close to a tipping point. But as you alluded to, there are several structural problems uh, with healthcare in our country that make this a very difficult proposition to uh, even estimate. Uh, one is, of course, the fragmentation of our healthcare reimbursement system and the fact that it, it reimburses principally for treatment and even for procedures and not for uh, cognitive services or for um, preventive services. And, you know, that makes sense economically to them since the average healthcare insurance provider uh, has their has their in-book rotate um, and churn every 18 to 24 months. So it's not really in their financial interest to invest in things that might um, amortize over five years, 10 years, or even 20 or 30 years of life. Um, however, uh, we, we recognized early on in, in these studies that the um, ec economics or the, uh, uh, we, we've made up a term, the econogenomics of this was um, critically important. And uh, we have had some of our team, um, Kurt Christensen uh, began working in this area and doing two things. Number one, measuring as best we could when we provided genetic information exactly what was spent downstream after that. So if we said you have a mutation for a cardiomyopathy, did they go ahead and get an echocardiogram and, then, and how much did that cost the system? And that's, by the way, where your randomized clinical trial methodology becomes really powerful because all of the people we're looking at were, were information seeking, otherwise they wouldn't have volunteered for our study. And those kinds of people might be people who seek out regular testing of all types. They might, they might demand x-rays from their doctors or blood tests. So if you really want to get a handle on the economics, you have to compare like to like. And, and what was beautiful about our design, though difficult to pull off, was you would give the sequencing and the results to half of the people and you and, and you would take another half who wanted it, but you wouldn't give it to them. And um, and then you would follow these folks forward for a year or two. And then uh, Kurt has gone over to Harvard Pilgrim where he's a faculty member, um, but still works with us uh, along with his colleagues, uh, Ann Wu and others who are now building sophisticated models so you can take some of the early data that we collected in, let's say, the first year after disclosure and, and now start using that to populate theoretical economic models that you can go five years out, 10 years out, and 20 years out. And this is really, I think, the only way you can approach these economic questions because uh, it's simply impractical to conduct this, the kind of trials I do um, for even five years, much less 25 years. <laughs> 
but exactly as you as you mentioned, people are critically interested in the in the economics. A couple of factors, though, Patrick. Um, one, the cost of sequencing continues to come down. Uh, the cost of interpretation, which is now higher than the cost of sequencing, um, is slowly coming down as people get more automated. Continues to have a manual component when you cast a broad net, uh, and people are really invested in creating tech platforms for um, responsible interaction with uh, both healthy people and, and people who are looking for diagnostic testing. Uh, you may know that I co-founded a company called Genome Medical four years ago, which has grown um, considerably, now has genetics experts who can talk to you by telemedicine in all 50 states. and uh, it's not direct-to-consumer genetic testing. Gen Genome Medical is not a laboratory. It's actually a laboratory agnostic, but it will help anyone who has a genetic question. And so if you've gotten something from direct-to-consumer that you don't understand, uh, they can help you out. If you have a question but can't get a genetics appointment for six months, which is pretty much the norm in an urban area, uh, they can help you out. And if you live anywhere else but an academic urban area and you want exposure to genetics and they simply don't have one in your entire county or region, you can get a you can get a genetics consultation. Uh, but even there, the demand is so fierce uh, that we have to think about uh, more efficient ways, uh, whether it's video, artificial intelligence, uh, collating people with similar questions together, chatbots, uh, all these things to try to use technology creatively to um, uh, automate the parts that can be automated, but retain expertise in the parts that are uh, complex. And that's this fascinating tension, Patrick, between the world of commerce and the world of academics. I, I'm I'm a full-time academician, except for that company. I I haven't you know been in business at all. Uh, but what often happens in business is that through marketing, um, the complexity of things gets watered down. It gets sim oversimplified. Oversimplified. When I go to talk in front of a lay audience now, and I say, "How many people in the room have had their in genome sequenced?" Half the people raise their hands, and it turns out they're talking about direct-to-consumer array-based testing. It's not at all sequencing. So right there is a fundamental misunderstanding that is pervasive throughout the population about what genetics is and what it can offer. If we take Genome Medical as an example, this feels like a one really good route that you can take the learnings from your research group and scale them out across the country is is that the best route for now is that the most um because I, I i'm making an assumption here but i suppose that individual consumers are probably paying for that out of pocket and so maybe there's a iphone like effect where you start with the people who are able to afford it but through automation and the other things that you describe you you're able to create then a solution that um that's accessible to everyone or is or is that something that actually can be that can go to everyone pretty quickly through deals with healthcare systems or other providers, which are structured differently so that they're structured around delivering value and long-term outcomes. Um, I'm curious how it goes from 
you know your your group in uh, in Boston to the entire country and and ultimately the entire world? What does that look like? Yeah, I think our research has created proof of concept for some of these ideas. Uh, we're obviously not the only ones in this space. Uh, we we recognize on the academic side the tremendous contributions of uh, Genomics England, um, Geisinger, um, North Shore, Sanford, just to name a few. Um, and on the business side, uh, you know, not only the pioneering effects of the early DTC companies, but the companies that have sought to bring complex genomic information to people through various business models like, you know, um, HLI and Helix and, and, and Color and, and others. So there are a lot of people in this space, but I am proud that uh, our academic research has, I think, been uh, a powerful proof of concept that you can extract a lot of reliable information out of a genome in multiple domains, that you can communicate that clearly to people. You can communicate it through primary care docs, which is something that uh, there's, a, there's a whole narrative that suggests you can't do that, um, that people don't overreact either medically or behaviorally, uh, that, the, uh, in, that the bump in downstream me uh, medical outcome spending is not horrific. We've actually been able to measure that. Yes, there's increased spending, but we can now tell you a kind of range for what it is. All these things had taken on a kind of mythology of their own within the genetics community. And we've brought a little bit of grounded uh, evidence to the conversations about that. So it's not like I had uh, intellectual property that, uh, that turned into genome medical. But I do think genome medical has been able to um, build on the business expertise of the other co-founders, Randy Scott and, and Lisa Alderson, and our incredible board of investors and, and advisors um, to start to think about a world in which genomic information is scalable, right? And, and just as you alluded to, I think you have to think beyond the conventional reimbursement resources. Now, Genome Medical has um, uh, bit by bit gotten insurance coverage for its services. We have uh, over 100 million lives covered right now in the United States. Um, but uh, as, you, as you mentioned, we can also look to laboratories to partner with. We can look to healthcare systems. We can help an entire healthcare system with their backlog of, um, of cases. Uh, they can white label our services as their own genetic services. Uh, we can work with employers who want to offer genetic services as a benefit. Uh, and we can work with research studies to uh, return genomic research results in a medically and ethically appropriate way, which is, I think, um, a, a huge untapped um, wellspring of information. You realize that even GWAS studies uncover, have the potential to uncover BRCA mutations and familial hypercholesterolemia mutations and sudden cardiac death mutations, um, not as many of them as you would find in sequencing, but these, these mutations exist in millions of people in computers all over the world, and those people don't know it. They don't know it. And I just have to ask, what is the, what is the rationale we have for sitting on this information and um, not making even an effort 
to go back and tell um, anyone that sitting in our computer is a well-established, well-validated mutation that suggests you're at increased risk for colon cancer. You should definitely go get those colonoscopies. You know, I, I feel like that's a huge missed opportunity. And I think this this conversation has has been happening in some parts of Europe, at least in in Iceland, for example. I, I know they've they've taken it, you know, to the other sort of extreme as as what you were just saying, which is, you know, do we have an ethical? Um, are we ethically compelled to to try to find these people and let them know, right? If we've sequenced and found someone has, you know, in this research database, and we can validate that it's true. Is it is it unethical to not tell people? And you know, I think we can go back. Neither of us are ethicists, and we have we probably have our own opinions on this. But um, I think it's it's the important question to ask, which is how do we unlock this information and create value in a you know in for the participants in an ethical way? Yeah, and and I'm with Carrie Stephenson on this. Um, you know, I, I think we have overvalued the right not to know. Uh, I think there is a there is a certainly such a um, respect we we should give to people who truly do not wish to learn something, but in the rest of medicine, we are understandably reluctant to indulge people who sort of say, "Oh, I may have cancer, but don't tell me, don't tell me if I have cancer." You know, don't tell me if I have high blood pressure. Don't tell me if I'm a diabetic. I mean. That kind of conversation would not be very sensible in every doctor's office in America uh, or around the world. And yet that is exactly the conversation we're having around potentially life-saving genetic results in every venue and every IRB and every investigative team around the entire globe in genetics. It's, it's, I do understand where it comes from historically. And I have nothing but enormous respect for all my colleagues who are trained in that in that vein, but I really disagree. I'm with you on that. We've talked a lot about sequencing in, in healthy adults. I just wanted to touch on the BabySeq project. Are there any key differences that you all have learned there um, in that context of healthy newborns versus adults? Um, I'd love to dig more into this because I think if you're able to do this successfully from newborn, you know, newborn babies, then it potentially changes everything, right? This is, this is one of the, you know, quote unquote, holy grails of genomic medicine is to do sequencing from birth, um, obviously comes with its share of sci-fi movies and, and ethical issues, but I'd love to hear whether the findings were largely the same or, and whether there are any key differences from that group. That's right. And and I'm particularly proud of our BabySeq project because it, it, it has been a kind of uh, vision for genomics for decades. Uh, you know, Francis Collins, back when the first draft of the Human Genome Project was being completed in uh, 2001, um, and subsequently, many, many times when he would speak in public about this, would put up an image of, a, of an infant and say, this is where we're heading. This is where we're heading is, is, is create this blueprint of life at the beginning of life. And it, it's rather remarkable that there had been absolutely no um, cohesive research program oriented around uh, large-scale comprehensive sequencing of healthy newborn infants. Uh, 
So we, we jumped on this and to their credit, NIH, you know, through the Insight Consortium funded it as one of the, one of their four Insight projects. And we were thrilled. Uh, but boy, did we uh, go through the gauntlet in terms of uh, getting this off the ground. Uh, two IRBs, an extra ethical advisory board, uh, stakeholder boards, uh, NIH supervision, uh, FDA got involved and, and wanted to um, regulate us in a way they'd never tried to regulate a previous uh, research project. Um, it, it was, uh, I mean, literally we had staff breaking down in tears. We had uh, delays while we were burning our grant money. Uh, you, you know, there was a reason <laughs> people hadn't tried this before. Uh, and, and there were, there were very, very sincere people who to this day feel that it's absolutely ethically unresponsible. And in part because we are, you know, we can't ask the babies what they want. It's uh, we are undermining the principle of autonomy in the sense that we are unveiling uh, genetic uh, risk information, including, by the way, some adult onset risk information that these babies um, obviously can't give us permission to do. Their parents are giving us proxy permission. Uh, and again, I don't, I don't ever intend to take those objections lightly or, or diminish the people who are making them, but I just don't agree. We, we, you know, we adhere to principles in all of pediatrics that give parents the right to make incredible decisions, life-saving life decisions for their children, and this is no different. Uh, even some of the adult onset things that we found in an infant for example, we found a BRCA2 mutation in a newborn baby. And guess what? It was being carried by the mother, unbeknownst to her, and passed on to the baby. We were able to go up through the baby and disclose to the mother, and we wrote an entire paper about this. And I think, um, you know, in families like that, we would be doing a greater service to the baby because we'd be saving the life of the mother, which is obviously beneficial. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it turned out that um, we discovered there's a lot going on in these babies. Uh, I think one of the most remarkable things to date about BabySeq is you, you're, you're confronted with these super healthy, rosy-cheeked, perfect little babies and you say, well, what could be wrong with them? And then you discover that uh, in our case, 11% of them are carrying a uh, mutation in a dominant monogenic condition. All right. So then you go, holy, holy crap. What? Let's, let's look at that. So you go back and if it's cardiac, you know, you do an echocardiogram and if it's uh, neurological, you may do an imaging study. And if it's skin, you may redo their skin. And if it's biochemical, you may, you may do a, a, a plasma level of a metabolic. And what we found was that a quarter of those in whom we identified a mutation actually already had some kind of evidence of the disease in play. So it's no longer hypothetical. It's no longer futuristic. It's no longer predictive. A quarter of the babies, rosy-cheeked, perfectly healthy babies in whom we found one of these mutations already had subtle evidence of the disease in question. So now we're not 
using DNA first for prediction exclusively, we're using DNA first to discover a previously undiscovered medical condition that's already there. That to me is the single most startling thing that's come out of BabySeq. And it is a real paradigm change in how you might imagine genomic screening. Everybody's talked about genomic screening in terms of future prediction. Um, is it, you know, what's the probability? What's the sensitivity, specificity, predictive value positive, all this stuff. Sure, fine, valid. Nobody's talked about it as a window into pathology that's already there and that we aren't smart enough to see in other ways. I did my PhD work in rare neurodevelopmental disorders. And one of the things that's always, it's always seemed, while it's been difficult to prove in most conditions, it seems logical that there's a window of opportunity where if you could intervene with a gene therapy or, you know, or a small molecule that could restore expression of, of the gene that's lost, for example, it stands to reason that if you were to intervene as early as possible, that you could actually you know, get the brain development back on track. Whereas if you only find out when the child's eight years old or, you know, later on in life and, and hasn't developed, you know, to the same degree as their peers, then it may be too late to actually intervene. So I, I think that's a really important point. Um, and it makes it more real. Like you say, rather than predicting something that may happen in 50 years, if, if in 5% of cases you can, you can intervene now and, and potentially change something, then, then that's pretty dramatic. That's right, uh, Patrick. And that, you know, that brings us to the whole concept of actionability, uh, which is um, a fascinating fig leaf of a term. Uh, it's used so often, and it's never defined. If you go to the trouble to ask each person who's using it to defining it, I predict you'd get completely different answers. In fact, um, I worked on a study led by Ingrid Holm in which uh, we asked people what they wanted to get out of, uh, let's say, a return of results scenario in a, in a pediatric biobank. And we gave them categories, you know, actionable, not actionable, treatable, not treatable, pediatric onset, adult onset, um, fatal disease versus, you know, uh, just uh, obnoxious disease. And so they made their choices. And then we showed them all the different categories of, of disease condition that they would have missed given their choice. And they all wanted the rest. Right. <laughs> I mean, not all, but, but many, many people said, oh, uh, you, you weren't going to tell me that? I said, and, and no, you said you didn't want something that we don't have a treatment for. Well, um, actually, I do want to know about that. So one person's version of actionability is different from another's, number one. Number two, Obviously, actionability means something different to human beings than it means to medical professionals. It doesn't just mean a pill or an x-ray or surveillance. It means thinking about my future, preparing my family, looking at the arc of my career, buying or selling more insurance, whatever it, whatever it means in terms of what's called personal utility. And finally, just as you, just coming back to the great point you made, uh, NIH for you know, all the reputation it has for being stodgy and slow uh, in the business world is way out ahead in talking and thinking about uh, gene therapies. In fact, I'm part of a committee that the um, National Center of Advancing Translational Sciences, or NCATS, is putting together where we're explicitly talking about 
how do you pick up those babies before they have the disease that would damage their brains? And what would be the harm if you treated them too early and they were never actually going to manifest versus the benefit of getting in there and doing this? Now, it obviously makes a difference what the treatment is. If the treatment is a bone marrow transplant, you want to be really sure that that poor child is going down the tube before you jump in there to prevent that. Um, if the treatment is biotin vitamin replacement in a child that might have a, a biotinidase deficiency or partial biotinidase deficiency, you might want to say, you know what, let's just feed that child a regular vitamin and we won't worry about, you know, no side effects, it's cheap, we won't worry about we won't worry about the variable penetrance in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we're headed towards a, an exciting new era of medicine. And I, I've just got, we're running up against time here. So I've just got two more questions for you. The, the first is really about what obstacles are in place to transition into this you know, world of more personalized, preventive genomic medicine. Uh, I'd love to hear from you which obstacles most that you see that most stand in the way, either ones you're focused on or or if not, that um, that other people should be focused on if they're not at the moment? Yeah, I think there are the uh, obvious obstacles of reimbursement uh, that we've discussed. Um, but, you know, more powerful than that, I think there's three narratives that stand in the way. One is the narrative we discussed of catastrophic uh, psychological distress. Uh, I think we are, we're, we're bending the curve of that narrative pretty well. Uh, second is the narrative that nobody but geneticists can take care of uh, or be responsible for these patients. I think there's an important place for genetics expertise, but we can spread that expertise around through specialties. There's all sorts of tasks and awareness we can share with primary care doctors and trust them to do it well. I think that that sort of global narrative that you sprinkle genetic counselors like fairy dust over whatever you know, wherever you have genetic information, that's the only way you can do it is, is nonsense. And I think the third narrative that's obstructing us is the uh, overwhelming fear of privacy invasion and discrimination. Uh, you know, look, we, we all know that our privacy is, is uh, becoming more and more limited through anybody who wants to mine our credit card purchases and our search history and our social media. You can find out so much more about me that way than you can from every piece of my genome. It's not even funny. Uh, and yet we persist in, in literally obstructing people from getting life-saving clinical. I'm not even talking about any of this forward-looking stuff. I'm just talking about uh, NCCN criteria for testing women for BRCA mutations and giving them some choices about how they want to live their lives and whether or not they want um, preventive therapies. We've got thousands of women turning that down because of fear of life insurance discrimination. Well, you know, get, get the life going before you worry about the life insurance. And plus, you know, the number of privacy invasions or examples of discrimination that have actually happened is frighteningly small. Um, of course, it's a concern, but there's there's hope. Florida has a new law you you, you may you may have heard about uh, that was passed and started on July 1st. That is the toughest 
anti-insurance discrimination law in, in the nation now, and others, other states are rapidly following suit. I was just going to ask whether you, you thought that was likely to spread across the country, because I think until the legislation changes, it's, this fear is likely to persist, whether real or not, right? There's a, is an important role for the legislation to play. Yeah, and it, it, in some ways it goes deeper in my mind than even legislation, because, you know, I, I wrote something about uh, did Gina actually reassure people? And um, I'm not 100% sure it, it, it does. So, yes, legislation needs to change, and pe- we need to be able to give patients and research subjects a clear message about protection. But there's something else going on, I think. I think, you know, we're in a society where healthcare has been a political football, uh, where people are constantly fearful that their healthcare is going to be taken away. This feels like an extension of that, whatever somebody might use against you um, in, a, in a healthcare environment could be exacerbated if it's genetic information. So I, I, I'm not quite sure how we fix this, um, but uh, there are people who talk about protected uh, repositories of genetic information, certainly the All of Us research program uh, that I'm very active in as far as the genetics component is is creating this beautiful vault of, of genetic information, taking great pains to protect it, trying to return some of the basic actionable information to people. I mean, it's, it's really setting a tone uh, and a leadership role for the whole for the whole country. Just one more question ending on a positive note. I'm, I'm curious what you're working on right now that you're most excited about or, or something that you're kicking off in the future. Well, we're very excited that we uh, have received a fundable score from uh, NCATS to continue our BabySeq work. And that will fund 500 uh, families. And for the first time, we'll be enrolling a significant number of underrepresented minorities uh, families in, in BabySeq because, as you know, there's been a huge disparity in genomic research between uh, people of European ancestry and the rest of the world. And so we're very mindful of trying to do what we can in our sphere of influence to address that. For example, one of our grants we haven't even touched on uh, is the first grant to return genomic results to the all African-American Jackson Heart Study in conjunction with, uh, of course, their talented leadership down there. And so uh, another one of our grants gave us a supplement to sequence um, 100 or so uh, African-Americans for free uh, and return the results to them. And we've been gradually uh, offering that to, uh, to folks who hear about it. Uh, but BabySeq is really where I think we can spark the imagination of the country and the world. We can say, look, this is a real world experiment. and we hope to actually uh, get corporate and philanthropic support to expand that from 500 families to 5,000 families or even 10,000 families, which would truly start to reassure people around privacy, reassure them around efficacy and utility. You'd have a big enough, I, th- I think you'd have a big enough example there where you could, you could start changing these narratives. So my dream, Patrick, is, and I'm, I'm delighted you asked about this here at the end, my dream is to uh, start engaging partners from all over the country uh, to join us 
uh, and be sites for an expanded BabySeq uh, project and um, to get some of the big corporate players uh, and foundations, advocacy groups uh, lined up with us uh, to make that a reality. Amazing. What an exciting vision. Well, thank you, Robert, so much. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. If people want to follow you, they can visit your website, Genomes to People. Is it .com or? Uh, .org. .org. And on Twitter, you're Robert C. Green. Is that right? That's right. Great. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. And we, we managed to cover a huge amount of ground. Uh, you've, you've obviously done some amazing work across a number of these areas. So thank you so much for, for sharing those with us. I'm really admiring all the people you've had on this podcast in the past and um, delighted uh, that you're doing what you're doing. And I really appreciate the invitation to be here. Thank you. It's my pleasure to have these conversations. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Genetics Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review on your favorite podcast player, or even better, you can tell a friend who you think might like it too. As always, you can reach us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com. We really love to hear from you all about any feedback you have, guests you'd like to hear from, or topics that you'd like to see us cover in the future. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.